Please read with me from Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, let's begin uh, by praying together. And I'd uh, like to awkwardly invite you to um, pray for one another, but um, just silently. If, if anyone needs prayer, right now on your heart, you just feel like you're carrying something heavy, um, I just wanna invite you to raise your hand up and the people around can see you and, and not do anything weird and touch you or whatever, but just to see that you're uh, desiring a word of prayer. And so just raise your hand up and then I'll pray out loud and then the people around you can just pray for you and, um, and direct their heart and affection towards you. Let's pray. Are there any questions that we could come to you with, Lord, that are too big for you to answer? when we're crushed by um, the things of this world that have our hearts feeling so heavy at times, feeling like we're in paradox, um, are you there? Are you able to help us navigate through the, the tricky waters of you know, 2019? Is your arm too short to save the people that are on our hearts that seem so lost and far away, are you able, are you worried for them? Are you anxious? Is there, some, is there something that you're afraid of that we don't know about? On behalf of the community here, Father in heaven, I'm asking for wonder that you would sweep into this room and any crevices of our hearts that, are, that have uh, doubt and um, unbelief that you would bring your wonder into those areas and show us how big you are. Show us your arm is not too short. Tell us the truth about your abilities and, and, and tell us if, if you're, that you're not worried and anxious. And you've never been surprised. Speak to us this morning as our shepherd and our leader, the one who can carry the sheep if we, if we are hurt, the one who will seek out the sheep that who is lost, the one who can see a lot farther than us because uh, you're taller and you can see farther and you, you know where the land is that we can go to to be safe and to be uh, satisfied. And if there's anybody who raised their hand or wanted to but didn't, I just pray that you come close to them 
surround them with love in, in whatever way that they're looking for. And thank you for being so near to us that we could just think or speak and you're there. Teach us about uh, how much you love us and teach us about your gospel this morning. Amen. So as you uh, heard the reading, we're going to, for the summer, be thinking through some sections of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter five to chapter seven. If you're not familiar with that, this is the longest unbroken speech that we have on record of Jesus, and um, it's very near and dear to my heart. Somewhere along the line uh, in life, I, I, man, I can think of different <laughs> anecdotal stories, but I'm trying to not do that as much. Uh, but I started to get really, uh, not obsessed with this, but I mean, the words of Christ mean so much to me. Um, and so I'm very excited to be able to share some thoughts and challenges for you this morning about um, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and here we are at the beginning of a season, and I appreciate living in a four-season state, because at the beginning of each season, you get an opportunity to make a change, to reorient your life, and I always like to slide uh, some challenges across the table to myself and to the people around me at a season change. And here we are at the beginning of the summer. And um, thinking about the words of Jesus, I'd just like to ask you, what does your Jesus say? Do you know what he says? What does the Jesus that you know speak into? Does he speak to things that are important, that are uh, that are big and culturally relevant, or does he, does he have a message that is bland and soft and just able to go on the shelf next to any other proverbial speaker or statement you know, that you can think of? Because the more I study the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, the more I see something that is not bland, the more I see someone who is speaking into things that are chaotic and are paralyzing and are very uh, confusing and paradoxical, that he speaks with authority, he speaks with substance, and he speaks with vision into these things on a regular basis. The Jesus that I see and that I wanna know, I, I wanna be influenced by is one who is subversive who looks at things uh, differently and actually calls people to follow him in a way that is not just theoretical but practical, who walk after him. The words of Christ are the things that ended up getting him killed. The words of Christ are the things that, that challenged people so uh, consistently, where he'll say things to people like, you know what, sell everything that you have. Maybe that's what you need to do. Jesus is speaking, th I mean, you know, he did miracles, but for what miracle did he get arrested? I mean, yeah, they get a little ruffled under the collar, or is that the wrong, ruffled feathers? Ruffled feathers? Hide under the collar when he did a miracle on a Saturday. But, you know, he said things after that like, which is easier, to, to, to heal a man's hand or to forgive him of his sin? And then speaks the words, you're forgiven of your sins. That starts to get people angry with him. 
And sometimes I think I like to side with, you know, the people who are mad at him for doing miracles on Saturday because he did so many miracles. At some point, you know, you gotta just say, Jesus, you need to take a break. You need to have a rest day, man. The miracles aren't the problem. It's the message that, that started to challenge the culture that he was in. And he speaks things not like an anarchist or not like somebody who's just trying to deconstruct everything. He speaks things more like, I think a, a blacksmith, uh, his plan is not to, is to take metallic and big stubborn things in our life like our past or power structures or our religious patterns and, and our sin and failure and melt them down and put them in the crucible of his love and forge a new weapon and tool that he can use in this world for solidarity, for empathy, for uh, healing. What does your Jesus say? Maybe this summer you can start to answer that question and think about your life and think, here is, here is his marching orders and is there any one-to-one -one comparisons that I can actually draw out to honor what he is calling us to be? Jesus, um, or not Jesus, I was gonna reference a quote of a book I read last, last summer. Bob Goff wrote a book called Everybody Always that came out last year, and one of the analogies in it that I thought was pretty profound was um, he said that people of this world are ferociously trying to build castles for themselves, and castles are there to um, protect with fortified walls and a moat and then a drawbridge to protect things of value. But Jesus doesn't ever call us to build castles. But he does speak of a kingdom. This is notable. As you can see in chapter four and verse 17, Jesus is speaking about a kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near is what his message was. And what does that mean? It means that he's not going around saying agree with me. Agree with me and intellectually believe the same things I believe. He's calling us, uh, he's calling people to turn and actually physically live within an ethic, live within a lifestyle. That's what a kingdom is. It's a place with boundaries and rules and vision and a leader and people who are trying to uphold the standard of that kingdom. Do you know that you're a part of a kingdom a lifestyle, an ethic, and the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of the kingdom of God. This could be bad because depending on the king and the ruler of the kingdom, they can make it difficult or make it a life that's just uh, uh, hard for the, the people who live in the kingdom. But if you notice in chapter four, verse 23, there is something else that says that he went from town to town proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. We talk about good news, the gospel. That's what we say, the good news. What kind of gospel is he talking about? Isn't the gospel when Jesus died and was raised, died for our sins? And how can he be talking about the good news or gospel before all of that? It's good news for the kingdom as it is connected to the king because when he unfolds what it means to live in a kingdom, it's good news for people because it's parallel lifestyle to the love of God. It's, it's, it's showing a lifestyle that brings love and redemption into the world. And that is good news primarily for people who have been ground up by feudalistic castle building empires. 
It is good news for people uh, that who he's talking to who need to hear this is the kingdom of God. This is what God is like. And this is what a life that lives parallel to that is gonna be like to, 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 to relay that information to the people that are around. So then he starts off this manifesto, if you will, with a list. On the record, from the very beginning, he says, these are the type of people or the type of person uh, that I wanna orient my kingdom around. These are the people who belong. And there we find those nine lines of the Beatitudes, what we call them. Poor in spirit, meek, mourning, peacemakers, people who are persecuted, pure in heart, people who know about mercy. I love that he starts the Sermon on the Mount with this standard. These are the people who are gonna be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. It's not an arbitrary list. You don't start this, this speech off by, with, with uh, just a random uh, <laughs> arbitrary you know, concept of people. You know, he is subverting with these nine things. He is specifically designing these lines to con confront cultural, social norms of empires of this world. And the one that I have been uh, kind of asked to tarry over and linger around today is the second line of the Beatitudes, the one that says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. At first glance, I was thinking through this this week, kind of had a little friction with this because um, it's different than all the rest. It's not an abstract uh, concept, you know, like pure in heart or something we can kind of throw up there and uh, just think about. This is something that is so massive and heavy. We talk about mourning, we talk about grief and pain and loss and death and the things of life that really scare us. This is the place where we are confronted with fragility, our mortality. This is the place where we have to ask the biggest questions that we can ask. To borrow a line from the book of Lamentations that says, O, o virgin daughter Zion, your wounds are as deep as the sea. We talk about mourning. We're talking about wounds that can be as deep as the sea, but if you're anything like me, not only that, but they're all also one inch beneath the surface is where it starts. How many times, if you know, if you're carrying sorrow in your heart, it takes sometimes just one moment or a word or something, and then you're automatically in that place of grief and pain and suffering. The more I think about why did he put this on the list, <laughs> well, you think, why is this on the list? I think, I don't know if the list would be as moving to me if it was off the list. I need a Messiah and a Savior who puts it on the list, he says, I'm gonna speak into the place of death, I'm gonna speak into the place of pain and mourning in your life, and the people who belong in my kingdom are the people who actually feel all the feelings. He's not gonna skip this one, like so many places and groups and uh, cultures wanna skip this, put it to the side, don't think about this, 
Don't talk about this stuff. We're gonna be just happy and Dan, it's just awkward to go there. We're gonna pretend like everybody's young and everybody's healthy and there's nobody in pain. He doesn't skip this. That is good news. That our Savior is one who's well acquainted with grief. He is one who even at the center of our faith experienced the pain and suffering of death, experiences the separation and, that, uh, and all the mess that goes with it. I don't have a, like a perfectly packaged way of talking about this even, and I don't think I should. You know, the Jewish culture has a thing that they call the seven-day or sitting shiva, which you can see goes all the way back to the time of Job when his family died and his friends came for seven days. They just sat there. And if you're anything like me, sometimes they just talk too much. And sometimes you need to just show up and shut up. Because when we talk about mourning and grief, we move into a place where words instantly fail. Where we can't, we just can't speak anymore, you know? But what we do have is each other and the stories that we can share with each other to, um, to connect a little bit more. And so at this time, I'd like to ask Tim Bassett to come share a little bit of his story. Morning, family. I know many of you can join me in this, and so... Um, yeah, please do. In 2013, I lost my mom to ovarian cancer. And last year, uh, I lost my dad to pancreatic cancer. And I'm gonna try to articulate what I felt and what I feel about that, both of those situations. And if you can, if you're able, uh, I just wanna give you permission to hate sin and evil and death with me. When I knew my dad was starting to go downhill, we didn't know how much time we had with him, but I, he lives up in the UP, so I grabbed my oldest son and we went up to spend some time with Papa, and uh, it just escalated way quicker than we thought. And Monday morning, May 27, uh, 2018, uh, I, was, I was overwhelmed by my dad's state. He couldn't talk anymore. He couldn't get out of his seat. Um, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, I called an emergency line for a nurse, and she showed up, and she took one look at my dad, and she said, he's going quick. You need to call the family. And our family lives all over the country, so... <sighs> One by one, I called his siblings, put them on speakerphone, and let them say their goodbyes to their brother. And I, I listened as they talked to him and shared their last words and got everything out. And then I called his mom, my grandma, put her on speaker. And for what felt like an eternity, I listened as my grandma sang hymns over her firstborn son, quoted scripture, 
I said, I love you, sweetie. I wish I could be there. I love you, Chucky. And it was beautiful. But I'm going to be honest with you. I hated that moment. And I hate it even now as I share. I don't hate my grandma. I don't hate my dad. I hate death. Death is awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. And it's ugly. And if you've ever been to a funeral, whether it's for someone close to you or someone you don't even know, you know you're sitting in that space and this just doesn't feel right. It's the piece to the puzzle of life that doesn't fit. Every human knows it. You don't even have to be Christian to know this doesn't fit. What's wrong with this thing? Death. And I know I shouldn't mourn as someone who has no hope. But sit in this thought with me for a minute. As Christians, we should hate death the most. While the world wants to normalize it and say, it's just a part of life. We know God's good ways. We know God's intent. So no offense, but don't tell me not to mourn. I'm gonna mourn my father's death for the rest of my life. And I want you to be able to join me in that if you've suffered loss, if you hate sin and evil and death. Hate it with me. Thank you, Tim. Testimony was uncoerced. I was not, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody today being overly dramatic or anything. It's just, we gotta have real stories and we have to have a church full of real people. And stories like that are not trivial. And we don't just throw it out there. It's, it's stories like that we should take our shoes off uh, when we listen to it because it's a, it's a holy ground experience when someone lets us into uh, their process. And thank you, Tim. We make a good point. To connect death to sin because when sin entered the world, so did death and these are, are, are not mutually exclusive. This is not the way it should be. So how do you process uh, th through even our sin? Jesus told a story in Luke 18 where he talks about two guys who are at a prayer meeting. One of them was, uh, uh, works for the empire and what they call the tax collector. And the other person was a religious Jewish person of the denomination of the Pharisee. Jesus says that the, the person who was the Pharisee started to pray out loud a very common Pharisaical prayer, which says, thank you, Lord, for not making me like X, Y, or Z. And you can read about this in your, in your studies. And, and there is a time and a place I know to thank the Lord for where you are in life, but Actually, this prayer seems to come across the way Jesus tells it as a self-righteous um, act, an act of pride. Thank you for not making me like that person, he says. The person who was the tax collector. When I was a kid, we, my parents 
<laughs> they used to say in order to go to church, you have to have your church clothes on. Church clothes. They used to, I mean, I was real little. It was a clip-on tie. It was a suit coat and maybe turtleneck if I was lucky or something. But it was always itchy and not normal. And you know about church clothes. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's great. My parents have a high view of church, but I think also the, the double whammy there is as if you dress people up in a formal attire, sometimes they'll act a little bit more respectable. Unfortunately, that actually never worked for me and my brothers who were just as chaotic as ever wearing any clothes. And so, uh, but what does church clothes do? Sometimes that there can be um, a thing at church when we come, we dress up, we be we can start to portray ourselves in a way that seems a little bit more good on the outside or emphasizing the outside a little bit more than uh, what might be going on on the inside. This week, Brandon and I, we were in our Bible study for uh, the sermon and all that, and um, I asked him to look up on Instagram how many hashtags have been hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed, and I'm not even saying hashtag blessed with heart or praying hands emoji. Just hashtag blessed has 111 million posts. 111 million posts, hashtag blessed. Now I would venture probably not one of them are, are lined up with blessed are those who mourn. And why do I connect this to church clothes? Because of what Instagram actually is. I mean, it's just a cursory uh, glance at this thing. It's a parade of prosperity. It's, a, uh, it's gl glances at people's lives who have escaped pain for at least enough time to take the picture. It's not people that are usually mourning or not people that are usually feeling the feelings of life that are painful. And let me tell you, when we talk about church clothes, this is not a game. When we come to church, the world doesn't need another filter on the outside covering up what's on the inside. The world doesn't need another group of people saying we don't have any problems. The world needs people who say this is who I really am and this is where God is meeting me and this is my process. The world needs people to say I have issues. I get really twitchy when I'm in a room, and anybody that knows me knows this, when I feel like people are pretending like they don't have issues and problems, especially at prayer meetings, you know? And I've sabotaged so many prayer meetings when I start to feel like it's, it's not getting to a real place because I believe so much in the power of prayer and the power of coming to God with your mess, much like the second person in Jesus' parable who didn't look up to heaven, who looks down and he's on his knees beating his chest saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, this man went away justified that day before the Lord. Jesus validates the person in the prayer meeting who says, I'm just gonna be honest and, and bear my soul. He validates those of us who say, I, I'm sick of the facade, the way things look, I'm just gonna be honest. 
If you're in charge of a house church, if you're in a small group, or you're committed to this community, I wanna challenge you to continue to not settle for the shallow, looks good type of meeting or gathering or time to, put, to, to dig deeper and to find the place of honesty. If we are becoming like the Pharisee and praying prayers that cover up anything that's deep down and real inside, then we are starting to let alive, uh, live our lives based on pride. And pride is really tricky to figure out, and I get it, because if you're starting to pray a prayer that's like, I'm comparing myself to somebody who I view as less than me, it actually feels good. It feels right. It might be for a lot of different reasons, or maybe we're just, we're just born and bred in this country to try and make ourselves look good and play the game and spin our failures into something that's positive. But it feels good to pray that prayer or to, to present ourselves before God in a way uh, that makes ourselves look a little bit better. You know that you're living a life like the Pharisee in that story if you actually, um, on a regular basis, are putting other people up on the cross. If you can look back and you can start to map out how many people you are looking at and you are um, judging, or how many groups of people that you're looking at and you're damning or looking at certain situations and quick to say, I'm glad I'm not like that person, I'm a little bit better than that person, pushing them more and more into that place of other and condemnation. This is a sign that pride has continued to infect your worldview and the way that we look at other people. But if we take the permission that we're given by Jesus to bring all of our drama and mess to the cross, we follow that pain when we're being honest to the cross, we will be received by the Savior who said, I love you, I've loved you before when you were in your mother's womb. I know what you're going through and I wanna help you through this. I've forgiven you, I've paid the price for you and I wanna make you whole and new. It's your choice, tax collector or the Pharisee, honest or not honest. I would recommend coming to Christ and mourning your sin, mourning your drama, and receiving the one who says, my sin left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. At this time, I'd like to invite Doug Sport for um, a personal testimony, and then after that, I have a few words to close. Thank you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I suspect there are people here today who are mourning and wonder, is God there? This was our experience, my wife and I, a number of years ago now. It was a drizzly, rainy November night. I had come home late because I had stopped at the doctor's office. And I came home with an announcement that the doctor had diagnosed me with cancer. Lori had made a wonderful dinner for us, and it went untouched. We needed to know God was present. 
then we did the dishes. And in the living room, I could hear the stereo playing. And it was playing Christine's work, Wurtzen's record album that uh, dates me, I know. But uh, she had a record album made called For Those Who Hurt. And it was a series of songs of encouragement for those who were hurting, those who had suffered loss. And I thought, oh, I can't even pray. All I could, told Lori, I said, all I can say is help. There were no words to say. So I was thankful Lori had put on that record album. And I told her so, and she says, I told her I, I couldn't have done that. I didn't have it. And uh, she says, well, I didn't put it on either. I thought, well, who's been messing with a record player? <laughs> so I went out in the living room, and the record player wasn't turning. It was WCSG playing that album. They played the album in its entirety. God was there. It was several years later, I met the station manager of WCSG, and I thanked him for that night and what it meant for us. He says, you know, he remembered that night. He says, we've never played an album in its entirety before. And we never have again. God was teaching us to look for the little things. To know that he was there. There were times when we felt so low and we'd get a phone call from a member of our church family or some other Christian friend we knew. And they'd say we were, they were praying for us. Oh, that would lift us up for five minutes. And we need another phone call. Come on, guys, call us. <laughs> but God would send people our way. After a period of time, they had to ship me down to Indianapolis for a major surgery. It was kind of gruesome. But when we got there, we were going through the admissions process. And... Uh, they asked, do you expect any visitors? And we said, no, we're not from Indianapolis. We don't, nobody here. So there aren't any visitors that we expect. Maybe someone will come down next weekend to visit us from Grand Rapids, but that'll be it. We got escorted up to my room. There in the room were six people waiting to visit us. What had happened was a professor at the Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary at that time had uh, called that church and explained that Doug and Lori were coming down for surgery and they would need visitors. That happened to be the visitingest church I've ever seen. <laughs> there was a steady stream of visitors from the time we arrived to the time we left. After surgery, I was feeling more dead than alive. 
and Lori would meet the visitors at the door of the room and then go down to the lounge with them and pray with them and kind of screen them so that I could sleep and recover. But there was one day she came and tapped me on the shoulder to wake me up. And I thought, go back to your doorway. <laughs> she, she said, uh, there's someone here, Doug, that I'd like you to see. And I think you'll want to see him. I opened my eyes and there was a long haul trucker burly guy with flannel, red flannel shirt and blue jeans and a big smile on his face. And he says, Sunday I was in church and the pastor says, do you need visitors? So he said, well, here I am. I'm a new Christian. I don't know what to do, but here I am. So Lori took him under her wing and explained what to do when you visit a person in the hospital. <laughs> but that was God telling us that he remembered, that he was there, that he cared. It was in the little things of life. And I encourage you today, if you're going through a trial, and for those of you who haven't gone through trials yet, you will. It's a matter of time. But when it does, and you want it to be comforted, look for the little things God is doing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Thank you, Doug. Honor to be here with you. I, I, okay, so the end of this verse, for they shall be comforted. Um, Doug brings up kind of a good point. What is the comfort that is promised here? It's a promise. And I'd like to add a little bit of a nuance here because um, depending on how you view or what you're looking for to comfort you, uh, you might be setting yourself up for a win or a fail. I was reading a, uh, some thoughts from Kent Hughes on the Sermon on the Mount this week and he actually made life a little bit more complicated for me because he started to comment on the way this is translated. It, it gives an illusion that there's just some ambiguous future comfort. comfort. For they shall be comforted, you know? And he said to not necessarily take it that way, for you could actually, there's more strength in the translation, for they will be comforted now and will continue to be comforted. What are you talking about comfort now? I mean, it's a lot easier to say God can make lemonade out of all the lemons in life that you get. You just gotta wait long enough and it'll, you know, I mean, like, that's just easier to kind of, you know, just stick up for God in that way and just say, you know, just wait or whatever. What is the comfort now that he's promised and the one that continues? You have comfort now and, and it will continue to be with you. 
I'd like to uh, turn your attention to a story that always kind of was a little enigmatic for me um, to end uh, the message today from John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is the Sunday morning after Jesus is crucified and uh, as far as everybody else knows, he's still dead. And we talk about mourning, these guys are in the throes of grief. Judas has committed suicide and not for nothing. I mean, they have put a lot of energy and they have put, they've left their jobs, they've put their life on the road for this cause, for this guy, and, and they've lost him. They've lost him, they've lost everything. Now what? Mary is, is beside the tomb, <coughs> weeping. She's weeping because also now that she's there, the body of Jesus has been taken. So she thinks. So then the gardener comes up behind her. You may be familiar with this or not, but he says, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken the, they've taken the body. Where, where did they take him? And he says to her, Mary. And she knows right then, it's Jesus. And she turns to him and she says the Aramaic word, Rabboni. It's the first person possessive of my, my teacher. My teacher. Rabban. Uh, and so she, she says to him, my teacher, and then he says to her, you might remember this, don't cling to me. And I've always kind of wondered, why did he say that to her? It's a weird sideways kind of thing to say. I mean, she's excited to see what you're talking about, cling to me. And uh, I, so I try to think of, you know, the, my experience with this throughout my life, and I think one of the first things I ever heard was that he had some sort of, like, special glorified body or something, and, you know, you can't be touched. But then, like, five minutes later, he, he says to Thomas, you want to know how I got these scars, right? And Thomas is, like, touching in the holes of stuff or whatever. I mean, like, you can be talking about you can't touch them. It's not a thing. I read somewhere that it was because she was a woman that you couldn't be touched. But that's not a thing either. In Matthew 28, when the other women see they dive down at his feet, worship him, they grab a hold of him or whatever, they're touching him. But the one thing that none of them have in common is nobody calls him what she calls him. So I'm just thinking out loud. This may or may not be true. I'm just, just test and approve, okay? All right, this is, all right. But what if after she said what she said to him, what if that meant something? What if when she says to him, this is who you are to me, it really means this is who you used to be, and he actually is saying to her, you're gonna have to let that go. Don't hang on to who I used to be. I need you to help me with this, Mary. I want you to go tell this new, th I've got a new thing happening here, but if you cling to who I used to be, it's going to hinder who I'm becoming or where this thing is going. When we're in a disoriented place where we're jostled and things seem like a little out of control or chaotic, or when we have a fear uh, because something has happened to us, or we're in grief and mourning, you know, it's a tempting thing to become nostalgic. It's a tempting thing to, to look back at the way things used to be because it, if we can just get there, it's like there's a promise that if we can just get there again, then we'll be safe and happy and okay like we were. I hear this all the time. You know, if we can just get back to uh, the way this country used to be, then we'll have, we'll have well, this, you know, have, or the decades, every decade goes by. If we could go back to the 90s, 
we could litter again. <laughs> then, you know, this is why, you know, the, we can go back to the old crossroads, back when the panther was on the wall in the gym. No, the wildcat, that's what it was, the wildcat in the gym, and, and, and that's when, that, if we could get back there. We can't hold on to the way things used to be and also follow Christ moving forwards. It's not going to make us safe, happy, and okay to continue to clinch to those things. And I'm, I'm just saying, this is a nuance. Maybe the comfort that is promised is not a comfort that you'll have what you used to have, but you will have me right now. Like Doug is talking about, no matter what happens, you don't have to say, well, if only I can get back to before I experienced this diagnosis. You can say, no matter what I experience, I have somebody who said to me, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will send my spirit to you, to live in you, to comfort you, and be with you. I don't think I can overstate the importance of the solidarity that I feel knowing that God is with me. You see this in the early uh, church, the way the Acts you know, lays out some of the stories of the apostles. And when they're in all kinds of tumultuous situations, they don't say, if only I could go back then I would follow Christ. If only I could have the way it used to be, then I would, if only I could get out of jail, then I would follow Christ. They say no matter what happens, even if, even if I lose the old crossroad, even if I lose the old uh, way of doing things, even if I lose this, I, am, I have Christ, my comforter, my shepherd leading me, and that's enough. Maybe some of us need to let go of some things to mourn, to grieve, and then to follow our shepherd who's leading us into wherever he's gonna lead us next. Anyways, that's something to think about. Um, so let's take a moment and pray and uh, evaluate where we're at and then um, Will's gonna return and lead us in some songs. Father in heaven, if there's any of us here who feel like just need to be given permission to mourn just the thing, the loss or the pain in life that we've experienced. I pray that you would meet us in that. Give permission. Welcome us into your table, into your kingdom, as we are. If there's any of us who are in, in, in contrast to that, even purposely covering up, the pain or the drama that's in our hearts or lives. I pray that you would give us permission and freedom to actually be honest for the first time and say, you know what, I have issues. But welcome us to your cross. Welcome us to your forgiveness, to your mercy. If there's any of us who have been clinging on to things and that's been hindering us from moving forwards or healing even, um, Help us to just let go and trust you. I thank you for being ever-present in our time of trouble. I thank you from the beginning of your book to the end of your book. You're somebody who says, I am near to the brokenhearted. I don't deny a, a broken and contrite spirit. I don't, uh, I don't look past Hagar sitting under that bush. I know people have been burnt by the black sun of death, and I want to be there with you, heal you. 
thank you for your spirit comforting us even now and continually being a part of our lives in the age to come. Amen. Thank you.